Okay, everybody, welcome to a very special podcast. This is the Farming for Good podcast. My name is John O'Farrell, I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by Peter Edwards from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. G'day, Peter. G'day, Jono. And also Daniel Ebb, who's a supporting person in this project, the Farming for Good project. G'day, Daniel. Kia ora, Jono. Just for the audience to be related to who you both are, can we start with you, Daniel? Um, who are you for the listeners? I'm a communicator, I'm a communications guy. I run an agency called Dirt Road Comms. It's a purpose marketing agency. And so we're pretty selective with the type of people we work with. We're focused on food system transformation, leaning a lot into the regenerative agriculture space, leaning a lot into um, just urban food systems and and this kind of stuff, uh, how people, particularly urban people, reconnect back with agriculture. Um, the project that's sort of most closely aligned, project of mine that's most closely aligned with this research work is Open Farms, which is our nationwide Open Farm Day. Uh, so far, we've helped 10,000 Kiwis get back on farm um, across 100 open farm events, just make it easy for farmers to whip it up and share what they do. That's the kind of work I do. Excited to hear more about open farms. I'm sure we will today. And uh, and so thank you, Daniel. Peter, who are you for the listeners? Uh, so I'm I'm one of the um, social science researchers at Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. And I've done over the years quite a bit of work around kind of social license to farm, social license to operate, and kind of helping people, I guess, understand the sort of yeah, people's percept public perceptions of um, farming or other other sorts of um, resource type operations and how you know those people operating those things can um, bring communities and the public along um, on their journey as well. Wonderful, Peter. And just for the lay person, you know, what is there's a lot of talk of social license to operate, and uh, what what can you tell us what that is? What does it mean to have a social license to operate? So I guess it's social license to operate is kind of this vague, I'll be honest, a vague sort of term that um, generally kind of means having your sort of public, I guess, let's call it public support or acceptance or approval for um, something that in this case, a land manager is going to do. So um, it could be that they, you know, you know, so, you know, building building new barns, build, you know, bringing in cattle, doing, you know, whatever they do, and it's it's kind of bringing bringing people along and sort of engaging with them and and um, being able to kind of you know meet meet their expectations and so there's a this mutual meeting of expectations on what what's going to happen as as a, a farm or um, a forestry operation, for example, kind of goes along. It's, I guess, in a way, it's really quite difficult to know that you actually have something. It's not a, it's not a piece of paper that somebody hands you and says, "Congratulations, you've got a social license." Um, so it's not like, it's not like you know, the the permit that you get from a government or um, other agency to do something, but it's it's that sort of underlying kind of public or community approval. I guess the easiest easiest thing to say is actually you, you kind of know when you don't have one. Um, that's when you get people turning up on your on your farm gate, um, protesting or demanding that you um, do this or that or the other thing because they've seen this practice or something that they don't like um, happening on on your farm or somebody else's farm. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's a it's a bit of a tricky thing to think about, but. Um, 
hopefully that, if I can that add explains to that, Peter, I think um, you're absolutely right that it's important until you don't have it. It's not important until you don't have it. So a few really good examples that I often think about are like um, uh, caged uh, uh, hens for chicken, uh, for eggs that's now lost their social license. And then in the end, that ends up with regulatory pressure, which makes that business unviable. Um, you're probably looking at some loss of social license in Gisborne Tide Arfidi, uh, with slash issues after Cyclone Gabriel. Like those businesses now are at least potentially not viable in their current state and have to go through some pretty gnarly transformation. Tobacco lost its social license. And now it's regulated almost out of existence in New Zealand. So if you're, if you're starting down a track where your social license is starting to fracture, there are a lot of examples where there are industries that lost it and couldn't exist anymore. So it's a good, it's a really solid thing to have in your back pocket, um, or at least understand where you are at along the, along the trajectory. So am I right in kind of my assumption here is like a social license to operate would be before regulatory and government action, like enforcement. Like it's not quite a stick, sort of more of a carrot. Would that be correct? Yeah, I guess it, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not like a, a, you shall not do this, which is kind of the stick, you know, like that's more of a, something that people perhaps are gravitated towards because it may open up markets. Uh, the word transparency seems to come to mind as well. Like a, and we can come to more about this soon, but um, tell me, what is the Farming for Good project? Let's start with what it is, and then I'd love to hear what are some of the things you've been discovering. Sure, I'll um, I'll give I'll give the sort of a bit of a, a high level overview, and then turn it over to Dan as well. Um, so farming the Farming for Good project that we've um has kind of I guess in name, sort of morphed morphed a bit over the over the period of the last year and a bit um but it was sort of initiated it was a call um from the our land and water national science challenge to look at um they had a number of aspects around social license to farm um that they wanted um, researchers and practitioners to explore so um we pulled together a team from um from Manaki Fenua from Ag Research um the Cothron Institute uh, University of Otago and Quorum Sense and Dan at Dirt Road Communications and, Thri and Thriving Southland um, to sort of put together this proposal where we we wanted to look at, try and understand how sort of farmers and the, the general public actually sort of interacted. What were their, what were their expectations um, in terms of farmers? What did they expect from the public? What were their expectations around good farming? And what, what sort of expectations of good farming did the, the general public have? And to sort of try and match those, match those expectations up, see if there were any, any things that were sort of found to be common or things that that were mismatched and we could then explore ways um sort of through different ideas whether it was um you know expanding on the, the um, open farms days that, that dan's organized whether there's other other sort of planning um aspects perhaps in the sort of those peri-urban areas where the urban is starting to meet um, the rural um and just see whether whether there were spaces that um 
that farmers and and the public could sit down and and potentially negotiate those expectations um, between them um, and sort of build those relationships up and and kind of maintain that social license for for farmers that that presently really you know for the most part exists. Dan, would you like to add anything to that? You know, I think Peter's described it pretty well. All I would say is, you know, that social that idea of social license is a spectrum. You kind of touched on it before a little bit, Jono, but there are some really awesome groups of farmers and businesses who we sit at the other end of the social license spectrum, which is you've got heaps of it. You're making and you're making business models out of it and you're capturing value out of it. And you're we can tell some story. I'll tell a couple of stories later on about farmers who are doing this stuff, but there's a it, that, that that positive side of the spectrum is really valuable as well. Um, and I think the part of the research project was, okay, cool. Who are the farmers that are sitting at the really positive end of the spectrum? What are they doing? What are some of their practices? How are they kind of operating? Um, you know, what's the role of things like certification schemes or insurance assurance schemes to push spectrum in the positive direction? Um, and so that's it's it's a pretty wide ranging bunch of research. I think we've got about 15 plus papers sitting in there, but all of them talk to how do you stay out of the crisis end of the social license bit? What are some potential signals that some practices might be heading in that direction? But what are the other practices? What are the other, um, who are the other farmers that are doing great stuff at the other end? And how do we get more of that? Mm. I really am curious when we, when you guys talked about expectations, my mind went into the space where it was kind of I could see consumers and urban people creating a set of expectations and then is there farmers that have expectations about um, consumer perception or maybe like where's the demand coming from when we talk about expectations uh, firstly love to hear what are some of the expectations that you've been hearing from the public and who's creating them? Who's sort of setting this this foundation um, from which the expectations are built? Yeah, I guess I guess just sort of one first one one little bit of I guess clarification. We we actually stayed away from terming it sort of looking at purely consumers. Consumers actually make a lot of their choices based on price and and a few other sort of things. So we've 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 kind of expanded that to stay with with the general public so that. Um, we didn't kind of get that that noise around those extra thing other things that consumers um, base a lot of their their purchasing decisions on but um in terms of i guess yeah what's what's driving expectations i guess it's just is un, i guess underlying it is is really just sort of the the kind of the the social sort of social narratives and norms that are that are sort of circulating kind of more broadly um you know, with in terms of the public, and and same with same with the farmers. Um, you know, it's it's those those narrative, a lot of those narratives and stories that are being told and and kind of retold that kind of, you know, may shift their their expectations um, as to sort of you know what is what is good farming, um, and I guess sort of a, an example an example of um, you know potential sort of an expectation kind of on the public um, that came, that sort of came through quite strongly in in um the surveys and, and work that we've done is that you know the, the public the public sort of expects that farmers are actually going to look at for example look after their animals um 
you know, carefully um, and look after the staff that they that they work with um, and have working on the farms. Um, and, you know, that was, um, I guess, one of the one of the expectations, actually, and sort of characteristics of, of good farming that really matched between them, between the public and, and the farmers was that that care for both the animals and the people that uh, that are on the farm. We get different messages from different different places. So one of the activations we've done out of this is a people's panel where we've got um, eight people, relatively randomly selected farmers, nutritionists, food systemy people, just someone sort of who lives in town and ask them these kind of questions. And you know the the urban person would say, well, I've changed. I'm eating more vegetarian meals because I watched a Netflix documentary and then the farmer would say I'm a little bit concerned about organics because I feel like you're putting me into a box and I don't want to be put into a box and so they're all reading different things and hearing different things and those end up formulating the way we see the world right their stories and so we're getting a get something fed like 3,000 messages to us a day living in our modern world so our stories are rapidly evolving really really quickly and food and farming really matters. Like we eat food three times a day. It's a representation of our identity. It's a representation of culture and heritage and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, this the, the characteristics of farming that Peter's looking at. You're right. They're going to change pretty quickly depending on if you're reading Farmers Weekly or Metro Magazine. <laughs> yeah. So Peter's work is really useful because it basically says, well, where's the benchmark here? In one In one case, we're being told that everyone in town hates farmers and in the other case we're being told that you know farmers is going to save the world so what do people actually think <laughs> so it's, it's quite useful to have a some you know a, a, a best shot at a baseline reflection of reality when it comes to these pretty gnarly stories and topics gnarly yeah complex like extremely complex so i take my head off to you guys for taking this this beast on how has social media influenced this concept is it what's brought it on or i mean this this day and age of you know uh someone sees something they don't like and we've seen this in new zealand a lot uh you know certain practices boom it's on the internet everywhere what do you think social media is doing in this space the survey actually asked about what sources of information do you trust and social media ranked pretty poorly, if I remember, Peter. Yeah, so we, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I guess I, I was going to point it to, try and point it to Dan as well, but. <laughs> That's uh, a curly not, one. Uh, end up John for taking the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, and I'm yeah, not surprised yeah. to hear this as, as kind of a distrust, and, and, and rightly so. But um, I guess to say it more simply, uh, is it because of social media that we now have to, or that, social social license has become kind of quite a, a a big thing that a lot of people are actually aware of now um i mean i guess i guess yeah, if, when you put it that way i think i think sort of both both social media and and sort of the main the mainstream media are because things things that you know are you know things something that people somebody sees on a farm or you know in a forest uh, forestry operation um you know those those things that you know they potentially don't like can be, you know, captured captured on your on your phone and uploaded to social media and and you know picked up by, you know, a huge number of people you know, very very quickly. So those those sort of images, um, 
and and sort of the center sort of one side of the story can be can be shared very widely very quickly and and certainly you know the general public and and the mainstream media often you know pick the pick those things up as well um and you know i guess it you know without without having sort of without being able to sort of show or be able to tell both sides or multiple sides of the of the stories then you know those you know some of those you know, neg- really negative stories then get kind of told and retold and, and sort of perpetuated um, that way that then, you know, necess- I guess sort of then sort of force force farmers or other other um, sort of land managers to, you know, end up being on kind of the defensive and have to go go back and sort of show that actually no there's you know it was taken out of context there's there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of other stuff behind that as well that it's not um and so you know i think i think sort of social licenses kind of you know gain some importance out of that where you know rather than rather than sort of land managers farmers sort of you know carrying on doing doing the great work that they do um kind of on their own is to you know start to open try and open up and bring bring those communities along um, and the public along on their journey so that that people actually have a bit of an understanding of what's going on and you know they can negotiate sort of negotiate or discuss you know expectate kind of those expectations on on both sides so that you know there's no no sort of not necessarily you know that many surprises i suppose that jump out and and you know cause some cause tension on along the way i was pretty chuffed to see that social media um when when um peter's team asked the general public what what sources do you trust social media was pretty pretty ranked quite far down down the list um the best one was farmers themselves were way up the top there was farmers and sort of established media um with the two big ones which i really thought was awesome because that's where you should be getting your information about food and farming from directly from people because then you've got context to sit there and say well why do you dock or why do you do why do you use fertilizer all that kind of stuff and you can talk through some of the the rationale and it, it gets less heated um you know we, we're moving really fast as a as a society these days and so i think the power of social media 10 years ago 15 years ago is was different to what it is today. A lot more people are, have, a, have a broad understanding that you know, there's, some, there's some pretty negative engineering mechanics with a lot of social media, that it's, you know, it, it, um, it's geared for sharing rage. Um, you, know, you can go down a rabbit hole really quickly. Um, it's not great for your mental health. So the, you know, I live in sort of the comm space. And what I'm seeing is a lot of people are starting to push back against social media as, as a, as a as sort of a major part of their lives and, and information diet. Um, you know, it's it's slow and it'll take a long time and it's probably a bit of a generational thing. If anything, the generation that's that's more into it now is sort of the, the older generations, which is just funny story to tell. Um, but yeah, I think, but the damage has kind of been done a little bit. You know, that was 10, 15 years of, oh wow, this is a video of a pretty gnarly practice in a dairy shed without any context. And as a result, I'm going to, change my diet, something like that. Um, yeah, that's a pretty, that, will, that was a really powerful force. I don't know how long it's going to remain a powerful force. For. I think the culture setters will push back against a lot of the context-free information they see on social media. And if not, if not abandon social media largely altogether, or at least negative social media. 
Yeah, just just to sort of throw throw a few numbers from 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 the work. Um, yeah, as Dan said, you know, we had a, about eighty eighty five percent of the the public respondents um, said that farmers were uh, farmers themselves were actually really trustworthy sources of information, whereas yeah, social sort of social media and kind of the let's say the alt right type media were were sort of right at the bottom with roughly kind of twenty five to thirty percent um, of the respondents. Um, saying that they they trusted that in some form or another um yeah and yeah i guess we're, we're pretty confident around the the um the public survey results we had um over 1200 responses from all across the country so um it's pretty pretty solid and and what are some of the key trends what what are you seeing there's a lot of respondents what are, what were some of the key trends you saw out of your out of your survey um I guess maybe not not so much not so much a tr not so much trends because I obviously haven't really tracked this over time, but um, that yeah, I guess that you know on an, on quite a number of aspects actually the you know both the public and and farmers were were pretty pretty aligned on on what what is good farming. So um, you know things like looking after staff, um, animal welfare. Um, uh, biosecurity practices were another really, um, uh, really highly aligned um, thing. Um, yeah, decreasing chemical inputs, so fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides was was up there as well. Um, there are a few, I guess, kind of, I suppose, divergent views where um, you know the the public public sort of ranked things like um, uh, sort of yeah, sort of family and local farming um, quite highly, as well as um, using you know, good management practices, having some strong sort of place attachment. So that kind of aligns with, with maintaining kind of small local, smaller local family type farms. Um, and then um, using sort of organic, regenerative or biodynamic um, farming practices rated really quite highly with them. Um, farmers, um, uh, you know, sort of aside from the the first ones that that were quite were really well aligned, highly rated, um, good pasture management, um, ethical and environmentally friendly management, um, being transparent. So there was a lot of the farmers out there that um, that said, you know, yeah, we're we're quite happy to, you know, we think showing showing people what we're doing is is important, and obviously, um, being profitable was was a was a key element of of a good farmer um, i guess we didn't we didn't necessarily have any practices that that weren't really in alignment it was just kind of different sort of different sort of levels of, levels of, of alignment i suppose between the public and farmers and no, nothing was actually really really that low um yeah, the again with with the information you know information about farming both both farmers and uh, and the public um, you know claimed that yeah farmers were definitely the most most trustworthy source of of information um you know followed by um, scientists um TV programming like things like um, country calendar um, as well as the some of the radio programming around around agriculture um, there's a little bit of divergence on the public kind of thought that uh, some of the industry bodies were really really good sources of information whereas um yeah some of the the farmers weren't weren't quite as enthusiastic about about um the industry bodies and um i guess yeah one of the really i guess maybe not so not so 
wasn't didn't come across as as really surprising, but was really quite quite exciting was that um, or sort of urban pe I guess urban people and the and the general public um, aren't as disconnected from farming as as we'd like to believe. So, um, you know, there was yeah, 65 percent of the public had some sort of connection to farming, whether it was through you know family or friends or having sort of sustained sustained interactions with with a single or multiple farmers um, over time. They, again, about 65% of the public actually said they lived within 15 kilometers of a working farm. So they were, they felt like they were, they were actually familiar with, with how farms operated because they were in close proximity to them. Um, yeah, then we had, yeah, about 50, just over 50% of the public had visited one or more farms within the last year and quite a number, obviously, through the Open Farms um, program that Dan runs. And again, it just under, um, if it, just under fifty percent of the public that you know sourced their sourced some or if not all of their food from either farmers markets or the farm gate itself. So there was there was actually a lot of quite a lot of familiarity with farming and connection with farming between the public and and farmers. Um, so there's, I guess it was just it was another sort of. Um, you know, element to, to kind of almost dispel that myth that there is a really deep urban-rural divide here in New Zealand. And and the more you say about it, and the more I think about my own kind of inherited, uh, it's almost like a stereotypical concept that as farmers, we are either loved or hated. It's a strong word, but you get my drift. Um, and as I ponder what you're saying, you've discovered through this research, I'm all of a sudden struck with, is it a myth? And Dan, I want to know, like, how many people have you had through open farms? And does this does this uh, concept of maybe it is a myth, maybe it's not as divided as what we farmers or some people uh, really think it is? Yeah, it's 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 a myth. Like, yeah, you know, Peter probably wouldn't say it because he's a researcher and he has to like always couch things with you know he's got a scientific mind. I'm not. I can just go out straight and be like, yeah, that's that's nonsense. Um, you know, we so we, we we turn open farms on every year for visitor bookings in February. If you if a farmer hosts with us and they're within about an hour and a half of Auckland, Wellington, or Christchurch and Tauranga, they'll, they guaranteed will book out their event. So, you know, 300 people guaranteed. We've had, we've had events that are, uh, you know, 300, 400 people book out in hours sometimes. Uh, every event is oversubscribed. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a huge unserved, unmet need for people to, to, to connect more with farming and, and I, you know, Peter's absolutely right that there's more connection there than we thought, which is great. But there's also, but it's still not enough. So I would I would say that going to a farm an open day once a year is not enough, considering how important food is and how important how closely connected we are to environment and how and the role of farming and food production and our national national identity and heritage. You know, it's important for kids to see it, right? And I'd say like one day a year. God, you go to the movies more than that. 
I mean, it's to me that's not enough. And there's one little bit that I picked out as I loved looking at sort of the side questions that we asked. And one of the questions was, so you might go to a farm, 50% of people went to a farm once a year, but only 30% of people said that they regularly experience the sights, sounds, and smells of a farm. So to me, it's that saying we need we need more of that stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have to be open farm days, because that's hard, hard work on the side of the farmer. And it's trying to trying to get it paid, but it, currently it's unpaid work. And it's voluntary for the public good. You know, when, when milk prices where it is and you know, the, the kind of challenge, the economic challenges that farmers are facing, asking them to take a day out is just for the public good is a hard ask. But throw health and safety under, into the mix. Well, health and safety is also a bit of a myth. So we've had 10,000 people visit uh, 100 plus events. Do you know how many health and safety issues or confrontations or basically anything, any negative experiences we've had? Zero. None. Yeah. None. Zero. Nil. You know, not even a broken ankle. Like I would have expected someone to walk out on a potato field trip or something, but nah, nothing. No, no, no high vis. <laughs> Please tell me no high vis. No, we have a bit of high vis, but that's just a branding thing. So I can plaster the logo <laughs> on people's back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, awesome. thing. so yeah, it's, and, um, and Dan, I want to ask what brought you, what pulled you to create that concept, the open farms concept? Um, I, I, I've, I feel like I've been very fortunate, um, in my life because I've been able to both sort of live urbanly and also live on a farm, um, and at different times in my life, both of those environments have been incredibly important to me. Um, and so when we started talking about the urban rural divide in 2015, I was like, oh, no, wait, I'm not the norm. People don't get to get on farm. Like being on farm was a trans, uh, at sort of my little journey was I was kind of going through a bit of a quarter life crisis at 25 working jobs. I shouldn't have been working, living place I shouldn't be living putting things in my body I shouldn't be putting in my body. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, it was a spell on the farm for about five months just to, to recenter. That was really quite transformational for me. I thought this is this is a really wonderful experience that not a lot of people get. And so if we can just do taste even one day a year, that that, that might change a few perceptions and help connection, all that kind of good stuff. So that was the impetus behind it. And it was a big deal for you that it really was like a, you said it was transformational, like, and, you know, I take farming for granted, you know, like just now today we had three tourists call in and uh, they only see me on social media and, you know, they rocked up and already knew who Keith the dog was. I didn't need to introduce them to him, but uh, I said, oh, look guys, I, I, you know, they came in for a cup of tea. I said, I've got to go move some steers and um, was just sort of thinking, oh, that would have to be goodbye. They said, oh, can we come? And I said, oh, totally, like, jump on. Yeah, okay, we'll jump it on the back of the, on, on the ute tray there, and they were good as gold. And, you know, we got these stairs moved. We sat at this point of the farm where there was this just incredible view, similar to the one that you're seeing in my background here. And I could see they were moved by that experience that, for me, I take for granted. It was, you know, oh, I've got to go move the stairs, like almost like a chore. And that was... a rather large, possibly life-changing event for them. 
that's a, that is pretty reflective of the feedback we get back every year. So we we survey every farmer who hosts and every visitor. And the the question I like the most is rank out of rank your day out of five. Uh, every year it's about four point six out of five. Uh, and something like 95% of people want to do it again, both host and visit. You know, I don't think you can get 95% of people to agree that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. That's, it's, it's gnarly. And some of the, the qualitative feedback we've had is that, you know, we've had parents email saying, off, off the back of one day, our townie kid now wants to get into food science. Like they just, they, they got stuck into like the growing cycle of some indoor tomatoes. And it's like, this is what I want to do. Um, so we've had kids, uh, and then, you know, we, uh, every year, uh, kids develop a bit more of an appreciation for animal husbandry. Uh, yeah, the feedback that we get through every, every year is just awesome. And so even one day, you know, even a day, a couple of hours, it's, it's a I'll very special what, thing. Very special. Uh, thing. Yeah. And for children, like you mentioned how great this is for children, like, I was about to just poke in there. Like, if you want your kids to eat your vegetables, vegetables, have them grow it themselves. Every time they, you know, the experience of planting, watching something grow, oh, all of a sudden they realize actually this stuff doesn't come plastic wrapped from the supermarket. Because a lot of kids, even my own, have that notion. Where does food come from? The supermarket. And I think, and Peter, you can sort of testify to this, that the research said that far from and I think maybe some farmers have this perspective that people aren't interested, people don't care. And if they do, it's it's just to sort of stick your finger in your business model and change your business and don't do this with your dairy cows and don't do that with your lambs and do, don't even be farming animals. Or the vast majority of people are deeply interested in reconnecting with farming and with food. Um, and the, the problem I think is that they just don't have a whole lot of opportunities to do that because, you know, go to the supermarket. That's a, it's pretty, yeah, pretty empty experience. Yeah, ex exactly. I, I was just going to um, sort of at the end of this sort of kind of poke in here and say that, you know, the, the idea of open, open farms or, you know, programs like that are, you know, I think is, is absolutely, yeah, Re there's a really big demand for it um you know in the in the public survey we had you know 50 50 percent of respondents that said definitively said yes we want we want to go and you know tour farms and meet farmers there's another 35 percent that said yeah we yeah we we'd like to but you know want a bit more kind of a bit more information um so you know you've got you've got 85 percent of people that you know, have this interest, you know, the public that have this interest. And when we go to the farmers, you know, we asked, asked a similar sort of the, the kind of the, the mirror question about whether they would be interested, how interested they would be in inviting, you know, public school, local community groups to come and visit their, their farms. Um, you know, we had about, I mean, it's a much smaller sample size, but, you know, we had about 8% of them that said definitively yes. And then another 65% that said yeah, give us a bit more information about what this would entail. But we're, you know, we're interested. Um, so there's, you know, you've got you've got you know over seventy percent of people on on sort of both sides, you know, the farmers and the public that say, yeah, getting out, getting out there, getting on farm, meeting a farmer, meeting, finding out what what they do is um is of really high interest. I can I can feel 
my inherited walls coming down. And, you know, I'm pretty transparent with what I do on farm. Like anyone that is, uses Instagram and, and knows about my profile on there, it's like every day you're seeing what I'm up to. But I still have those concepts in the back of my mind, like, oh, maybe farmers, uh, maybe, you know, city folk don't want to hear from me. Maybe I'm not liked. And, you know, with people associating certain eating dietary trends or beliefs, associating them with like a, the, the sense of self, you know, emotions are high. You know, you look at the, the vegan movement, the um, vegetarian, you know, all of that stuff. I totally still feel sometimes like I have to kind of keep my mouth shut or, and you know, like I fully believe in what I'm doing and I'm a pretty out there guy. So I can only imagine this myth, how it's sort of held on, but I'm really glad like this information is kind of, like I say, having, having me sort of almost lower those walls. Um, and I want to ask the question and, and albeit bluntly, uh, what is, what does this information achieve? Like, what do we actually do with this information now that we've got it? Um, well, I guess, I guess, kind of the the key thing is is to sort of get it get it out there in in a in understand in an understandable way. And um, you know, Dan in particular has come up with with a with a great sort of communication strategy for this project, so that we can we can get this information out there. Um, you know, I think it I think it'll it you know, it'll go a, a huge way towards dispelling that myth of, of being, you know, there being an urban rural divide. Um, and along with, you know, along with that, it's, you know, I suppose a bit more intangible, but, you know, it starts to, starts to sort of, you know, give, like you yourself have just sort of admitted that, you know, Jonah, that, you know, it starts to break down the, those walls and it, you know, it, it I think, you know, it contributes to you know improving say improving farmer well-being you know they realize that they're not not these sort of terrible pariahs out there um, that you know people the vast majority of people actually do really appreciate them and, and the work that they do and think that they are doing great work um and you know the public are, are generally behind them um you know it can you know potentially give them give them a you know a sense of you know, better self-worth and be able to go out and, and actually, you know, maybe not fear having conversations and interacting and getting to know the public and, and vice versa. Um, you know, it shows, you know, that there's, there's a huge amount of support, you know, from both farmers and the public for, um, you know, initiatives like open farms and, you know, it can hopefully, you know, start, start to sort of, yeah, I guess kind of, bring bring those bring those two kind of sides um together again and and yeah. oh my goodness the yeah. sides are a myth as well oh uh, absolutely oh my yeah, goodness and and just right now as i'm listening i'm thinking the conversations that i've had where i'm coming into this conversation with someone who i know is like not a farming person and like i'm not saying this is the truth but like just speculating here is it possible that farmer coming in with kind of tippy toeing a little bit um city person coming in kind of tippy toeing a bit both concerned about the other person judging them so like the urban person assuming or kind of um yeah i'll say that assuming that possibly this farmer is going to judge them and then the farmer 
coming to the conversation, kind of assuming that the city person is going to judge them. And then the conversation being kind of weird because of that. And then both of them walking away, being right about what they had assumed. Both based on assumptions or myths. That might not have communicated, but for me, it landed like a ton of bricks. was like, holy cow. (laughs) I wonder how many possibilities that I've encountered to enlighten somebody who hasn't been exposed to farming practices before because I had a concern, not based on truth, but on assumption that they won't want to hear what I have to say. I think that is 100%, you know, pretty close to 100% correct sort of in you know in the past sort of in the past and and even in the present right now but hopefully this you know kind of the you know the messages that are coming out of both you know this research and there's there's a you know another another few projects that um, our land and water funded as well that were worked sort of in the same same sort of area and you know we've we've all been finding the same same sort of key message that same key message that you know they're they're actually this this mythical divide doesn't really exist and these sort of sides don't necessarily exist that you know farmers and the and the general public are are pretty much you know seeing things in in fairly similar light and you know hopefully you know by by getting that that information you know this information out in you know relatively easily digestible ways um that when when farmers and and the public sort of end up you know coming in to have sort of a conversation that they aren't actually going to be kind of tippy-toeing around that they'll you know they'll be able to to share you know their thoughts and and that fairly freely and and you know the conversation might be might start out a bit awkward but you know i think you know by by just knowing that you know there there is no sort of necessarily opposition on either side that you know that conversation will start you know sort of open up um, as as it goes along i think that's a really nice point peter it, the the mindset shift i mean it's like with everything right the mindset shift is the start and then it's what comes next and i don't think this research is in any position to sort of say well let's build this or let's build that it's more about what can a urban person who was really disconnected from the source of their food and a farmer who's now interested in what they can build with that urban person build together and the the foundation of that is right, well you're not my enemy you're not some protester who's going to come and sling mud at me and actually farmer you're not this environmental mr burns character <laughs> you're just trying to get by um okay well if you're interested in what we're doing on the farm and i'm interested in getting you know good healthy food at a, at a decent price that I know has been grown well or better yet having my kids come out here more often or engaging with some kind of healthcare on-farm healthcare stuff so suddenly we're now in the position well what businesses can we build together and that's the that's to me is that is sort of this the pathway that this kind of research kicks off um so I've just come back from an overseas trip and the thing that stood out to me the most was a Dutch farmer who had partnered with a um, a local special needs education specialist, as well as their regional council around um, uh, a a program on farm for kids with learning disabilities. And so they built this entirely new business that had never been created before 
because of this new sense of connection that they didn't have five years ago. And so like that's local economy, you know, that's keeping money in the local economy, that's delivering to a public good, that's creating um, more financial resiliency for the farmer. Um, you know, off the back of that, it's just, that to me is the future. This, this idea that the farm gate stays closed and then the tucker just goes to the Fonterra processing plant or the meat processor, that seems like a very binary, non-dynamic, static system. But if you've got this backwards and forwards sort of local businesses built on connection and what people, what urban people need, which is connection to nature, um, outdoor healthcare, outdoor education, food, um, re recreation, that's our farms can do that stuff. We're just sort of locked in this. Well, I just talk to the sales rep and I just talk to the Fonterra guys and I just talk to Reef Farmers Weekly and I stay in this bubble and then the urban person reads Metro Magazine and watches Netflix documentaries. <laughs> That's about it. And so that sense of connection can kick off something pretty, pretty amazing if um if we if we let it. And we've been seeing that with open farms, like the amount of farmers who um uh, have either already established a direct-to-customer business or are accelerating the direct-to-customer direct business through open farms is yeah, at least 50% of them fit into that category, probably more. That excites me to hear that. Because my next question, as I ponder this very big conversation, is um, it seems to me like the farmers wear the responsibility of the kind of weight of the whole food production system is there any conversation about where these middlemen that you mentioned you know like the fonteras and the you know these these large commodity based uh purchases of goods and distributors um are they facing similar challenges around social licensing and are people asking questions of those entities or is it mainly directed at farmers i guess it sort of comes back to some thinking that myself and some colleagues did a few number of years ago that around you know sort of social license kind of along along the whole value chain and you know, I, I don't know what's whether it's sort of changed in the in the resulting sort of four to five years or not but the i guess the thing that i guess the from what we sort of kind of preliminarily sort of looked at is that yeah the kind of the social license issue is is aimed at both at, at sort of the two ends of the of the value chain so it's it's kind of and sort of aimed at the farmers themselves or the forest forestry operations um as it, whatever it may be because they're the they're kind of i guess the visible the visible sort of start of the chain and it's also aimed at you know a lot of the um you know say the supermarkets or the or the building supply companies that are the retail end because they're they're really sort of visible the that kind of big middle chunk is is not that visible to to the general public so i guess they they often sort of escape escape that sort of scrutiny that that's applied to to the visible ends um of it so but you know there is you know there's certainly certainly sort of questions i mean you know being raised you know if, if we take 
if we take sort of the you know, the milk process processors, you know, around around things like you know the the use of, for example, the use of coal in in the in the kilns, um, and you know, drying drying the milk out, um, you know, but there's yeah, they're just not that visible, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right, Peter. I think it is starting to change, um, particularly on the retail end. Supermarkets should be looking very closely at their social license right now. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we don't need a Commerce Commission report to tell us that most of us feel like we're getting a bit screwed over to the tune of a million bucks a day with the Commerce Commission report. I guess the question I would just ask is, should milk that needs to travel 100 kilometres from farm to a school or a hospital or cafe be treated the same way that milk going to China should be treated? And what do we lose when we treat that, you know, litre of milk the same? Um, and I think that's where this research is really useful because there are clearly examples of where local food economies that connect farmer directly with um, citizens citizen eaters can net huge benefits, not just economic benefits, but social benefits and environmental benefits. Um, and in, in that situation, the likes of Font, you know, the Fonterra or the supermarket may well not be as viable a player, but creative destruction, right? Um, I quite and, like that, like, a, like not being anti-anything because it's all pieces of the puzzle and what would it look like if everyone truly believed that and there was no one to point the finger at? You know, like, what do you think that could look like? Should there be no uh, division? That's a tricky one. Um, oh, this conversation's gone way deep. Like, whoa, we left the data back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We left the data back a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> well, this is, this is the... Uh, do like... we, we ask that in the survey, Peter? Yeah, I was going to say there'd be, you know, the there's the potential for like you say a lot a lot less stick i was going to say you know government regulation and and um you know coming down from from all levels of government but it's you know it's i guess yeah, like you say it's it's a really tricky one and it i think it feeds into feeds back to what dan was just saying you know questioning whether you know milk that's going you know 100 200 k away from the farm should it be treated the same as you know whatever's going overseas and um you know it's yeah i think there's there's so many different shades of gray in there that you know there's there's things that could be done you know that would you know sort of locally that would that would sort of you know make things you know tweaks that you know different things from what's being done today um you know realizing that one one size fits all doesn't actually work and you do, you know you do certain things for your for the local markets and you do certain other things for for sort of the overseas markets um and i think yeah i think how it would be it would be very sort of nuanced and and again sort of same with same with the you know say the, the good farming practices what you know what might actually constitute a really good farming practice in in southland may not actually be really you know that great in in the Waikato or Northland, um, and you know what's what's done on the Canterbury Plains is you know quite different from you know the the Tairafiti. Um, you know so, and and I guess it comes you know it comes down to that that sort of 
you know, to me, I suppose some of that that government regulation that says, you know, everybody shall do it this way. Um, there's, you know, there's just really no, and that's what's come out of, you know, a huge number of interviews in in another project is that, you know, the you know a lot of the farmers around, you know, particularly around regulation, want to see want to see thing, you know, limits and and other sort of rules being set much more locally. So read so say by the re, the regional council that, you know, is able to go out, you know, knows the area, is able to sort of understand the nuances of those of those areas and and, you know, set appropriate sort of policies or regulations rather than a single one size fits all from from Wellington. because um, mm. and then I, th I think that sort of yeah sort of around around sort of social license and and the expectations the expectations are you know different different communities have different expectations and you know they can they can be sort of negotiated on a much sort of smaller scale which is which makes things a lot easier and i think that would bring a lot of honor as well back to the farmers like they're actually being treated as you know uh because you're so right, like a, a a blanket regulation or or you know the way that farmers need to operate is vastly different dependent on where they live and um, the local context. And what I guess this whole conversation is bringing up for me is uh, there may not be a huge divide, but what I can see is a I was going to say diminishment, but but maybe it's it's always been quite low of trust, um, of the farmer towards the perhaps the government regulations or the authorities or you know like uh there's always been a thing you know oh man how does someone in Wellington know what's good for us out here you know, um, but then also through that very nature of all of those regulations consumers and, and everyday people are kind of led to believe by default that these regulations exist, that they can't trust the farmer. I think that's a really good point. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. I had to put the headphones on. Um, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, and sort of to go back to what you were saying a little bit, John, about adversarial nature, it's, it's pretty easy to be adversarial with sort of a nameless, faceless organisation. So it's easy for a farmer to be adversarial with the Ministry for the Environment, or it's very easy for a consumer to be adversarial against some sort of big business. Um, the, the flip of that is when you are responsible not to a nameless, faceless organisation, or a nameless, faceless organisation doesn't set the tone for how you do something like buy food. But when you've got a dynamic relationship locally, then different things start to happen. So I was again reminded of a farm I saw overseas where farmer was selling locally, had this really engaged relationship with um, a town 30 k's away. That's where all his customer base was. So he came out, they came out to the farm all the time. It was always running open days, but then they wanted to do a bunch of um, uh, reforestation, turn part of the, you know, basically do what whole, you know, do what tens of thousands of farmers are doing now, forest up a, a part of land that probably should never have been deforested to start with and so instead of going to the ministry for the environment or the local council and applying for funding and doing all the things that we sort of do as default here they just went to their customer base they're like hey 
do you guys want to kick in? Do you want to, should we just crowdfund the trees and do you guys all want to come and plant them? And so like in the course of two weeks, the thing just happened. Like there was no paperwork. There was no, you know, double checking and certification. And so under that context, their responsibility wasn't to the processor or to the government regulation. Their responsibility was to their customers, to the citizens and the public that made their business work. And as a result, everyone's getting better outcomes. Um, so that yeah, there's there's this this massive untapped value. And it's hard to see where we are, from where we are in the in the system. Like right now, ninety five percent of people get their food from a supermarket. Um, pretty regularly. Uh, so it's hard for us to see what that new system looks like and what we can build and layer on top of our farms when we get there. Um, but from the sort of the, the, the farmers that are right at the front and we took it right back in, on the very positive end of the social license spectrum who are using it to just do awesome stuff, there's so much value there. So much. Uh, but it's hard to see at the moment. We've covered some ground that I didn't think we'd cover, and I'm really glad we did. <laughs> and and I have learned a lot from this conversation, and I bet you I'm not the only one. And so for people that are interested in perhaps seeing some of the data, I love that you're going to present it in a way that's simple. Uh, how do they? How do people find out more? How can they see this information? How can they be involved? Uh, so the, the Farming for Good research collection is available on the Our Land and Water National Science Challenge website. We've built a little microsite to house everything, sort of 15-odd different reports, and we've segmented it so you can quite clearly see which ones matter to you, depending on your role in the food system. Um, that's the first point. Just have a good look, have a good read through. Um, there's a bits and pieces we're producing off the side of it to make things a little more accessible as well. So there's a, an absolutely wonderful case study that Quorum Sense has built or is building um, here at Jules Matthews Farms, Mangaroa Farms in Wellington. That's like, I see these case studies all the time, but this one, this one's an absolute banger. Um, I've seen bits so, of it, mate. I know exactly what you mean. Awesome. She's just the most wonderful woman and yeah, just cut through, cuts, cuts through all the nonsense. And I think is artic articulating, she's at the right, the end of the, social license spectrum where she's using it to build an incredible business and regenerate a landscape and do all that amazing stuff. A really, really good case study. Uh, and the thing I mentioned earlier was this people's panel. Um, that's also a pretty accessible way. We've used a lot of the prompts um, from uh, Peter and the team's survey just to ask real people their sort of gut reactions. Um, so that's a nice way to you know, watch something while you're cooking a feed at night. Um, and, and you'll digest a little bit of the stuff we talked about tonight today. And perhaps we'll make sure it's sitting in the description of the of this podcast here as well, Dan. A link to that um, that site would be quite useful. Um, anything you'd like to add, both of you, as we bring this podcast to a close? I guess other than, yeah, just sort of, I guess I'd sort of just sort of say that um, you know I know I know sort of so, social license is kind of this term that is either in some ways kind of this yeah really 
has a really horrible sort of connotation um and particularly where i would say some groups have almost weaponized it to to try and force you know businesses and various operations to do certain things in their in their own in the way that they want them to do it but it's yeah i guess i would just sort of say that you know despite the despite the sort of the negative connotations around social the term social license you know there's there's a lot of lot of operations farmers land managers you know processors out there that are doing like dan said some absolutely amazing work um without you know without having that sort of label attached to it and um you know whether whether it's got a label or not um you know those those underlying principles about you know building building relationships between you know the the sort of the operator or the processor and and the communities that that around them and and kind of getting that trust built back up again um you know those those are the those are really the key the key things about you know, sort of building those relationships and and just you know keeping them going and and building trust the term social license peter we've got to we've got to reinvent it <laughs> it's terrible yeah. it's like you can be revoked at any time oh no i don't like it at all we've used the words um trust and connection as sort of a a replacement yeah. for social license in a lot of it in a lot of content but in a group like this for listeners like yours john who probably heard the term we could we lean into it but we shouldn't <laughs> yeah exactly it's a bit like we talked about uh the role that you know jeremy clarkson's show was played for you know uh making bringing awareness to farming in the uk and you know maybe jules matthews is our version of that you know the more people watch that case study the better but um you know i also think uh, it could be almost reverted to a bit like old joel salatin you know for him his doors are never closed and i think that might be you know like a really simple way of putting things it's like Social licensing could be termed, look, are you willing for people to come and have a look? You know, are you willing for people to check out what's cooking in the kitchen? If so, I think you're pretty safe. Yeah, I like Actually, that. safe's I like another that. shitty yeah. word. Let's not use safe. It's <laughs> a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> private, yeah. John, I'll use my little last pieces to, to do something a little bit selfish and, um, and ask that if there is a listener out there who's interested in this stuff to, to consider hosting with open farms uh we're doing the next one again in uh, on the 10th of march sunday the 10th of march 2024 um i think i think it's a really good taster for a lot of farmers who you know there's a lot of farmers out there my dad being one of them who's like i don't want anyone to talk to i just want to be left alone to do what i do and that's totally fine but there's also a lot of farmers out there who are interested in hearing other people's perspectives and sharing what they do and getting that that feel good vibe from having you know, people who are disconnected. It's the same thing you talked about this morning, Jono, like you got a rush from seeing people love what you do every day. And I think that, you know, we talked a little about sort of this this, this journey to, to go up the social license ladder. That's a very good taster. And if you walk off your open farm day thinking, gosh, that was good. It's like, all right, well, what else can I do? Also, you've got to now, we give you the email list of the 200 people that turned up. So you're already off to the races. If you want to do, I don't know, a workshop or a planting day, you've got 200 people, 100, 100 which will probably come along. So 
that's that's kind of what we're trying to do with open farms is accelerate the the um yeah the, the opportunity for people to climb up the, the social license trust and connection and dynamic business ladder so yeah keen beans with with you if, if you're open if you're within an hour and a half of an urban center we'd love to have you well, mate, uh, if you would like to tap into the Timaru, Omaru, Dunedin area, mate, I'll put my hand up. People want to come up the Waitaki. We've got. Oh, yeah. uh, we need Dunedin. Totally... We need Dunedin. Yep, Dunedin's an hour and a half, hour and 40, maybe. But perhaps another conversation for, for off, off here. Let's, um, let's talk about an open day here. I'll host it. Good, man. There we go. Climbing the ladder already. Oh, you, you climbed the ladder long ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter, Daniel, thank you so much for your work in the space. Um, thank you, like, you know, 1,200 people, the, the work involved in that is, you know, I can only imagine is, there's a lot of work in there going on behind the scenes. And for even just bringing awareness to the subject, you know, I, for one, out of this conversation, have walked away with a sense of, I don't need to worry so much. This The whole thing is a myth, and it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. So, look, for both of you, from me, and the New Zealand farming community, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Donna, for the opportunity.